Hello and welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Site's regular podcast. I'm your host, Brian Vitali. Joining me today are Adam Vitali. Hey, guys. And James Galizio. Hey. You might be able to tell from the sound of my voice that I'm fighting off a cold, and we're also missing our regular George Foster for the same reason. Uh, but we decided we'll still have a short cast today. There's honestly not much to talk about, and we mean that legitimately this time for a couple reasons. One, it's been a short week. Uh, because our last podcast was not posted until Monday, so it's only been really four days, four full days since. And two, it's just been quiet on the news front in the first place. But we still wanted to talk about what we've been playing, what we're looking forward to, and the couple bits of news items that did happen. Uh, I'll hand this off to Adam first, just in the what we've been playing uh, intro to the cast. So what have you been looking at over the last five days since our last time we got together? Yeah, so I, I finished up uh, Saga Scarlet Grace. I mentioned that last week. And just we're kind of in a little bit of a lull before some bigger releases released in uh, April and uh, March and April. I did not play the, I actually decided just not to play the Final Fantasy demo because it looks like it's very similar to the one I played at E3. Uh, of course, looking forward to that. But in the meantime, uh, I revisited Tokyo Mirage Sessions on Nintendo Switch, the re release. I've mentioned before on the cast that I wasn't a really big fan of this game, especially various mechanics that it uses. But I often have wanted like to revisit games, especially when various things have been tweaked, like in the Switch release, just to kind of reconfirm or perhaps change my mind on 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 things. And I just wanted to see like how I if I still felt the same way about it or not. So Tokyo Mirage Sessions, I'm going to assume people are familiar with what it is. But it's kind of a an awkward, interesting, creative mix between uh, SMT series and Fire Emblem, where a basically a a group of uh, amateur up and coming performers are trying to get into the Japanese entertainment industry, and it uses a it uses a a SMT style battle system with some Fire Emblem mechanics kind of overlaid on top of it, plus some of its own things. And I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but one of the things about the game that I... And uh, I talked about this on the previous cast, but one of the things about the game that I wasn't a huge fan of is the session system. What the session system is, it's a way that attacks are linked together to basically perform long, high-damaging, flashy combo chains. In terms of presentation and just energy, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's over the top. It's it's uh, exciting and whatnot in that regard. But the thing about it that never really sat well with me is that it's you don't actually do anything with it. You don't have any control over it. It it basically acts on its own. You, the player has no input on how it's, how it's done, other than hitting a weak spot and then a chain follows. And I compare it to other games that have similar like comboing or linking mechanics in the turn-based style that require some sort of input on the player, like setting up a, an ability or preparing your your chain or executing it in some way. Like making you have to you have you have to have some skill or some preparation to pull it off. And here you just don't. And I kind of just feel the same way revisiting it. It just it's it's flashy, but it's boring in a way. Does that make sense? You just don't do anything, and especially once. This is a long game, like 50 hours. Once you've seen it enough, it just kind of gets tedious just watching it every time, even though they've in introduced a, a slowdown or a, a skip-through mechanic where you, it kind of it skips a lot of the animations as the, as the uh, 
as the uh, session is going on. That's what I was going to ask is if there was something that allowed you to shorten the, uh, like almost like the old uh, Final Fantasy games where you could shorten the summon animations. Yeah, it, like even that. with the shortening, it can it still takes, I wish it was shorter. And I don't want to sound like impatient or, or maybe I just do. But the, when the fact that like, especially by, by about like 60% of the way through the game or so, where you still have 20 hours left, you can easily get combo chains that are like eight, nine characters long. And even though each person's thing only takes maybe, uh, t- t- let's just say two seconds, one or two seconds for each cur- for each character's thing, when you do that on every single attack, it just kind of gets blah to me. And now I can I can barely I can barely imagine how I how I managed to sit through like five second attacks in the original version. It just it it just takes so long by the end of the game, and you're running into fights all the time, and it's just. But also on top of that, the the way that you imp- that you increase your combo chain isn't really that interesting either. It, all it is is uh, you're farming drop items from enemies, and once you get them, you basically create weapons. And then once you create the weapons, you get more of the links that basically allow your chains to be longer. So that's the thing you have control over. But that's just not that interesting either to me. Like I, I compare games to this like. Uh, um, Bat and Kaido's Origins has a has a chaining system in its combo system in its in its combat system, where you basically are dynamically dealt cards all the time in combat, and you're discarding cards all the way all the time and using cards all the time, but you're you're also trying to stockpile cards to put together a chain, and so it's kind of like this real time dynamic. Got to hold on to these. Got to discard this. Maybe I, maybe I just can't use this card and. It's a little bit of luck at the draw, of course, literally with the card system. And then once you can pull off a long chain, it feels like you actually accomplished something. Or uh, another game, and I know this game gets a lot of flack. Sorry? How do you feel about the resonance system in uh, Labyrinth of Refrain? Because that was technically a a chain thing, where like occasionally a never party member, never coven member would like attack after one of your guys's attacks like the uh i forget the name of the class but the one that used bells had a really high chance of that I'm, i don't remember if that was if you had much control over that either other than just some classes had a chance to follow up yeah but the well, thing about uh labyrinth of refrain maybe not directly related to like combo chaining is that of your 30 is it 35 characters you can have eight eight times five 40 is it 40? 40 <laughs> technically, yeah. You can have you have what? Three frontline fighters in five different in five different slots plus five backup fighters in five different slots, so 8 times 5. Yeah. But yeah, like all 50 of or all 40 of those slots, you have you can put whatever you want in there. And then there's different uh groupings and whatnot for different bonuses. So there's a ton of player agency there and how you build it. And even uh, so, stuff like that is really interesting to me. Where it's like your approach to the game matters. In a Tokyo Mirage session, it feels like it doesn't really. And even like even like SMT games, you have almost full control over what what demons you want to use. Uh, and Persona games, maybe less less so, but you still have your main character's persona is totally up to you. And uh, setting up all out attacks is a little bit more challenging. There's no such. There's no really uh, equivalent to an all-out attack in um, Tokyo Mirage sessions. 
And I know this game gets a little bit of flack for various reasons, but also even games like Xenosaga 2, I think, had a better chaining system because you had you had to set up um, your boosts in that game, and yeah, you like had to break enemy. Launch in the air, and this character's going to yes. down, and they're going to do it at this. You order. had to you... exactly, and you had to like um, you had to break an enemy's guard first. And then you could set up uh, like different characters had different elements in that game. It's like for example, Ziggy was fire element, but you could basically add fire element onto another character, and then you could make their like ether boost each character's weapon as well. And then like if you set it up properly, you could have like a character break defense, then another character launch, and then another character uh, attack with fire and ether boosted attacks, and then follow that up with more fire and ether boosted attacks, and then you get like what it's called. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's like you get like a fire chain and an ether booth chain. And it feels like you accomplish something when you pull off a long chain of attacks. In Tokyo Mirage Sessions, when you get it on every single attack you do, it just it just kind of it's, it, it it's just doesn't grab me. Point. Yeah. So and I'm kind of an RPG numbers and mechanics nerd, so I know a lot of people might like this game because of its colorful and energetic. Uh and in a, it is creative. It is it is admittedly a creative take on Fire Emblem and SMT. But just when the combat is just kind of the same thing over and over, and I don't have a lot of control on how I approach it, that it just it's just I think it's an okay game, but it just doesn't have what it takes for me to like really get into it. So I am glad I revisited it. Do you think it's made worse by the fact that you like, let's say you're let's say you're halfway through the game. Have you pretty much seen all the animations that there are to see, or does it like do you unlock more? Basically, no. It's ev- it's the, it's pretty much games. the same every single time. Like, if you have uh, Mamori jump in on a session chain, she basically does the same attack every single time. Or same with uh, you know any other character when they jump in on a session chain, they pretty much do the same thing. So you. Every, it's not only that you're getting a chain every attack you do, but it pretty much looks the same every attack you do. So even visually, it kind of gets boring in a way. Um, because sometimes the, this might be very surface level, but you can like if there's a game that changes up, like what? Let me just word it like simply: if you're playing a Final Fantasy game and you unlock the last overdrive or limit break late in the game, uh, even if it's accomplishing the same thing, it's it's just something new to look at. It's something just thrown into your arsenal. Well. I was actually just about to mention there is one component that does change up, and that's during your chains, you can have uh, a semi-random performance, like mini performance come in from one of the game's like songs, and there's like more than 10 of them, um, or acts that the characters get in their side stories. And those are semi-random, so those mix things up here or there. But even then, you feel like by the end of the game, you've seen them all dozens of times. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, just to not, not just to not be so negative on this game, one thing that I do think I actually genuinely enjoy, and Cullen might disagree if he was here, is I think the dungeon design is actually pretty decent. And in a way, it actually kind of feels like uh, an Atlas PS2 era um, SMT game in terms of dungeon design, in terms of the puzzles that they use, in terms of uh, length. Like, the last dungeon is a pretty lengthy dungeon, but that's very true for SMT games, is for the last dungeon to be long. Uh, 
and it just it, is it like they, the dungeons are they bespoke or are they random they're just they're, they're bespoke and i'm trying to think how i want to put this they they're a lot of game dungeons i think of like octopath style where it's pretty much just like follow a path there's a very obvious dead end here get a chest follow the path there's a very obvious dead end here get a chest and then oh, fight the boss at the end yeah and it's just it's just not very interesting <laughs> but here they're actually like uh there's puzzles uh, that you have to solve for instance the very first dungeon is a dungeon that has multiple floors and you have to go up and down floors through these uh it's actually through these like maid costumes you kind of and the puzzle comes into the into play by you're adjusting through switches which floors each of the maid costumes are are basically exiting out on and there's various entrances to each floor so it actually you actually have to like open your map and look at it and be like okay the switches are here the maid costumes here it looks like this maid costume can get to this section of the map but i need to figure out which what order do i need to press these switches and which order i need to enter the maid costumes to enter and get to this part of the map, which might have, you know, a, che- a treasure chest or whatever. And, like, there's actual stuff like that where it's not such a linear dungeon and actually a puzzle you need to figure out. And I, I, I appreciate stuff like that. I, I know some people might argue that this just slows down, that this is just tedious and it slows down uh, the game. But I actually appreciate a game that has a little bit more to its gameplay than just, like, cutscenes in combat, you know? Like, actually having to, well, to work around a, like a, a dungeon. You're he- you don't like how the in a way the combat tends to play itself past a point, but the dungeon overworld gameplay does not. So it seems like that's kind of why. Yeah, that's the reason why I like it. I like that part. I think that part of the game I think is actually not too bad. And like I said, it actually feels not too different from like the types of dungeons you would find in Digital Devil Saga or whatever. Um, you know, same sort of similar sorts of puzzles. Uh, similar sorts of lengths. So, how do you feel about the um, the Switch editions? Because I don't really know. I don't really know oh, what's old, what's new, etc. So the 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 ability to skip through your session of uh, right. your session animations is new. Uh, so that's probably the most significant addition. Like, isn't that that mechanical shortcut? Otherwise, um, the only other real sizable addition is this one little extra side story that opens up like uh, at three different points throughout the game. It's all, like, it opens up in pieces. And it's just like a small little side quest really between two of the characters, Subasa and Kiria. And it's, you know, it doesn't really add a whole lot. Like what the actual storyline content is, is that Kiria is the veteran and Subasa is the newcomer idol, like wannabe. And that that's not new. That's 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 part of the game's established cast. But it's part. It's basically uh, Subasa wanting to uh, work with Kiria more directly as like a as an equal rather than like being like a fan as she was. So and it's you know it's it's okay. It's fine. But it's not really new in that regard. So and then like the the ultimate reward you get for for beating this side story is there's a new song between the two characters like a duet. And you know it's 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 fine. <laughs> like, this is the this is the part of the game. I'm not like all the song stuff. I think is okay and good and fine. 
I just am not super enthusiastic about it. It's not. I don't think it's bad. It's just it's kind of whatever to it's me. Fine. Yeah. So, so but, it, but, but it's not song. like it's not like the game plays significantly differently. It's got a significant extended chapter. No, it's it's just like this quick little dungeon areas that are new, and it's pretty much. They're actually there's a small puzzle in in a couple of them, but they're you know it's it takes like I think like other three sections. The first section takes like ten minutes. Second section is like fifteen minutes. Third section is like twenty minutes. So it's like an hour total of new content. So of a fifty hour game, which, which maybe that's fine because sometimes uh, they don't always hit the landing. Oh, adding stuff to to these games. So one yeah one other thing is um a smaller thing is that in these dungeon areas you actually do unlock more sessions in this game uh three of the three of the characters that aren't party members tiki uh maiko and barry they are main characters like you talk to them fairly frequently but they're not party members but in this Switch version, they add like they can now participate in a session from from basically the from the background or whatever. So that actually does make sessions longer in a way, and it makes it easier to be longer. So, which to you might not even be a benefit, unless well, at that point it's just like yeah, I see what you mean. Where at that point there's not a big difference between six people jumping in and yeah. There's not a big difference between six people jumping in every time and nine people jump, jumping in every time. You know, you just sort of get used to it. So Tokyo Mirage Sessions, yeah. uh, a loop. Sorry, the, sorry to start this out kind of negatively. I just, <laughs> I, just uh, I don't think it's a bad game. I just think it's just like it could have been way more interesting. Uh, even, I even think of like stuff like, uh, this is a different style of game, but like Tales of Graces, you're lining up like your art chains to lead to land to like some final combination blow at the end and you have it's like an art tree that you follow through that you totally have control over what you're doing um and you just don't hear and that just that i just can't get over it sorry if that sounds immature in a way but i just can't get over the fact that you, these sessions you just don't have they're just the same thing every time <laughs> okay moving on from from <laughs> very enthusiastic adam playing Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Uh, James, you've been looking at a newer release over the last week. Uh, how do you feel about Pokemon Mystery Dungeon? Well, I've been looking forward to this for quite a bit, like ever since it was announced. Uh, really enjoyed the series growing up when I was like in elementary and middle school. Played, uh, I remember playing a Rescue Team and actually not enjoying it as much as the later games in the series, but I also know, knew like, looking back that it did a few things that the later entries didn't so i've been meaning to go back and replay it and this remake was the perfect opportunity to do so uh i'm not quite done with the main story yet and nowhere near like the uh, post game which is definitely the majority of the game's content but um i'll have to say like there's there's some rough edges on this remake but for the most part i think this is uh, one of the best uh remakes i've seen in the last couple of years and that's kind of funny considering like how many remakes seems seem to be coming out in the, like recently like we've had like Resident yeah, Evil our, 2 our remake, first our, yeah and our first two discussions of this podcast have been switch remakes uh or at least re-releases yeah, like so yeah there's like 
Um, it's really interesting how the art style looks in this one because they really tried to make it look like the 2D portraits, but running in 3D. It's interesting. It's got this uh, filter on the shadows where it's like you have the shadows shaped like the Pokemon, then there's like these black diagonal lines like dotting the shadows to make it look like the shadows themselves were actually drawn and it's it's really cute um the gameplay is interesting because like going in i was expecting it to be a lot easier because of well most games that nintendo and pokemon company release that are like remakes of previous games tend to be a bit easier it feels like and ironically enough, I'd say this one's actually a bit harder in some ways. Uh, I haven't gone to the post game, but I do know the post game is significantly more difficult because of the oh. addition of uh, mega evolutions for uh, Pokemon that have those. But the uh, major thing is, is that, um, well, the game has a few new features that on the surface makes it seem like it would be easier. Like you can have up to eight Pokemon in a party now, and that does make things easier. But the game seems to be kind of balanced around that. And it's also balanced around the uh, Makuhita Dojo, where you get these, like, dojo tickets. You go in, and it's basically a fast track for, like, leveling up your moves and leveling up your Pokemon. And the game definitely expects you to use that, because I'm actually starting to run into some small difficulty in areas that I wasn't expecting to. <laughs> Is it? Do you think it's more difficult just because like enemies can mega evolve or something now? Is that? Am I understanding that right? Um, that's part of it, but I'd also say that it's just balanced a bit more around okay. the new additions, which is something I actually wasn't really expecting. Um, what I will say is that I'm not sure how I feel about the removal of the uh, basic attack. Because, like, in the previous games, and, like, I guess ever since, like, Gates to Infinity, the basic attack has been more or less useless because it only does, like, five damage or something like that. But um, in the previous games, like in the DS games, I should say, um, you had your Pokemon moves and then you'd have basic attacks, and that was kind of their way of solving the mm -hmm. issue of having to choose a move every time, like, slowing the whole thing down and making a roguelike much slower pace than it should be. The problem is, is that the new game, this one, they've removed the basic attack feature. Instead, when you press that button, the A button, it'll just randomly choose the best move to use against that Pokemon, which is fine. I guess it works, but it does mean that you're constantly going to have to worry about uh, your uh, moves, um, uh, um, like how much charges for each move you have left so the game definitely is balanced around that and like dungeons are just absolutely littered with uh, ethers that you can use to refill moves because you're going to have to constantly because you're no longer going to be able to just use like a regular attack that does no move <laughs> you're constantly using moves so you need to make sure that you're also constantly like charging those moves back up. So, um, so when I, sorry if this is a weird tangent, but like when I think of like what makes like an RPG an RPG and like what is like a key component of one, if I had to like boil it down, I would say the answer is resource management, like in general, whether it's yeah. money or 
a meter of some sort, health, mana, something that you have to manage, like resource management. And that's sort of, that's exactly what it seems like you're getting at is now you actually have to manage your basically your charges and you have to use them. If an RPG, if you can get by with like just ignoring resource management or just forgetting about it or whatever, then I, I think that I think that almost necessarily makes it weaker where you can kind of just ignore that and just kind of blitz through everything personally. Well, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't going to generalize to resource management, but I was actually thinking along the same lines about how in a lot of games you hear like these stories about people who hoard items. They'll never, never use their elixirs. Oh. And like people kind of make a funny joke mm-hmm. about it. And like, it's, it's kind of like a commonality that you see in like Twitter memes or social media. And I, I'm sort of like of the mindset of if an item gives you, I guess to use your word, uh, a resource, whether it's ethers or an elixir, but it's not it's balanced such that you can easily hoard them and never use them and to me that almost seems like a misfire like I, on paper i haven't played pokemon mystery dungeon rescue team dx but if they're giving you a lot of ether or ether material but it's also designed in a way where you're expected to be using them to me on paper that actually sounds like really robust that sounds good like uh, to me that sounds like a very cool uh give and take mm-hmm. for that sort of system so yeah, uh, I, now that since James is the one that has played it, let's see if he agrees or not. Do you, do you think you <laughs> like the idea of looking around for ethers to to recharge your PP for your moves? Well, um, I'm of two minds about it because the game already has a few upper meters that you need to worry about. Like the hunger meter, for whatever reason, is a lot more. Uh, it's I I don't remember getting hungry as quickly in the uh, Game Boy Advance DS version of this game. And in this one, you basically need to scarf down an apple every like six or seven floors. Whereas in the uh, Game Boy Advance DS versions, you wouldn't really have to worry about that for like 20 or 30 floors. So it's like, I think what I'm getting at is, is I do like resource management, but I'm not sure if the game is kind of harming its pace by having so many different things that you need to worry about in the game, like from the get go. Cause it's like, it's not, it's still not hard. It's still not something like Sheer and the Wanderer, but definitely feels like the, the type of resource management that I'm being asked to use here is closer to something like Sheer and the Wanderer, but, or maybe even a little bit beyond that. And it's, and I'm not sure how I feel about that with the pacing. Yeah, I, I feel like you're given an extra resource that just feels tedious to manage rather than engaging. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I didn't, I didn't want to imply that like more is always better. There's good execution and bad execution, but I think this should be there in some form. Yeah, I don't know. And I do want to give a shout out to that uh, George. George, uh, who is probably in bed uh, sick right now, uh, did put a review up for Mystery Dungeon rescue team dx it seemed like he was pretty positive on it relative to uh, a few other publications uh he also did put up some, a couple guides but it's we got some cool coverage mostly backed all from uh george's playthrough of the game so do give that a look if you get a chance yeah, his his general take on it was like he had um actually i don't remember if he played it as a kid uh, let me check his review here but he liked it more than he was expecting to especially like the story stuff of it yeah, that's the one thing that people always say about um, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. I have to concur is that the stories are generally pretty good. Uh, one thing's for sure, like ever since this remake was announced, everyone and their like grandma has been wanting to hear like, "Oh, I hope this does well, so we can get a remake for the second one." Because 
that Pokemon only people really like. Pokemon Mystery Explorers is like the most well-loved Pokemon spinoff of all time. Like, that is a fact. More than Pokemon Snap? Yeah, more than Pokemon Snap? Well... Well, Pokemon Snap is like lot- one of the one of those games. Like, it's not like anything else. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, I still love Pokemon Snap myself, but I think people definitely the story in the Explorers games is actually legitimately really good. And I do think, especially seeing how the uh, presentation of this remake has uh, been handled, I would very much love to see a remake for the Explorers games in this same art style. Now, I'm not sure if uh, Nintendo slash Spikes Funsoft are interested in doing so, but hopefully, hopefully. And, and hopefully this uh, is it doing does, well. Do, do you think that this would be someone who doesn't play a lot of uh, dungeon crawlers? I would I would assume that a Pokemon-themed one would be a good entry point. But is that Does that hold water? Is that the case? Would you say, If I were to play a new dungeon crawler, would Pokemon Mystery Rescue Team DX be a good entry point? <laughs> Well, yeah, it'd probably be a pretty good entry point. I'd say. I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people, yes, but I, I didn't want to like, yeah. just assume that, that was the case. I, I, th- I think for a lot of people, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, like heck, when Pokemon Mystery Dungeon first released, I didn't realize it was like a spinoff of another series. Basically, I mean, not not a Pokemon spinoff, but a Mystery Dungeon game. Like I did, I thought when it first released, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon was just like a Pokemon thing. Like, oh no, wait, Mystery Dungeon's actually this broader thing. Uh, so I think it's very much meant to be entry level for that style of game. Yeah. But like as James said, it's harder than he expected. So like it's not a cakewalk. It, yeah, it doesn't feel like a throwaway. Like I, you don't get I definitely, out of it. In terms of... it's, well, it's definitely still very easy. I'm just saying that it's about on par, if not a little harder than the original, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But I'd say that the ways that it's more difficult and the more higher emphasis on resource management definitely makes it a better like a uh, starting point for the uh genre because it gives players a better expectation for what other games in the genre would play like mm-hmm. so yeah it's not so trivialized that it's uh you play it and you get nothing out of it you don't even you don't even like recognize how the game is meant to be played or whatever or games sometimes are released with so many tools to the player to make them so easy where you almost don't have to engage with the mechanics at play. So it sounds like that's not yep. the case here. Yep. So speaking of uh, remakes and re-releases, uh, what I've been playing is Final Fantasy VII, not the demo for the new game, but just the original, because I had played it a long time ago. Well, not a long time ago, like five years ago. Uh, and I enjoyed it, but I didn't want to have that like foggy, nostalgia-laden, as much nostalgia as you could have over five years. Uh, I wanted to have a good, clear, recent, and relevant understanding of how that game presents itself before going into the remake next month. So what I did over the last week was I played through the Midgar section of the game, took some notes about like what's referenced when, what future events are foreshadowed, uh, who's introduced in what order, basically so that I can compare to the remake so I can have a better understanding of what's changed, what's something that I just... I didn't want to see something in the remake and be like, I don't remember this happening. Did this happen? I wanted to have a clear foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, just 
it took me i know this isn't really that important but it's something that people are interested in it took me six hours going at a semi-leisurely pace with plenty of time wandering and, and like grinding up in the, in the graveyard to get from the start of the game to exiting to the world map so six hours is midgar if i was going really quick i could probably have done it four hours if i was really really kind of like taking my time it'd be like seven maybe eight if you're going really slow but uh it was interesting, and uh, I, have, I have kind of two threads of comments, some that are about the game itself, and then I played the PC version, and when I was playing the PC version, I guess I'll start with the second thread of comments. Uh, the PC version obviously has been around for a long time, because it was originally released in the late 90s, I think, from Eidos. It's had a PC version for years, and the Steam release is basically just that in, in uh, new packaging. Mm. I guess in 2016... The PC release got a small degree of touch-up where they replaced the, the MIDI files with the actual PS1 music files, so it sounds like it's supposed to. Uh, it still has eight directional movement instead of full analog, which for some people, that's a deal breaker for me. It's just like a minor nitpick, like I'm okay with it. Uh, but then I look and there is a, you know, decades of modding scene behind this game. And you could see like all the different... Uh, tool sets people have used all the different like applets people put together to easily you know configure how the game plays how it looks and i dug into that briefly for about like two hours but what i learned is that what a lot of people like to mod into this game particularly i don't really care for uh for instance uh one of those there's like a popular mod that replaces the on-field models with like up-to-date like proper proportioned character models and to me i just think it looks really awkward like it's not it doesn't look like the intent it doesn't look like what i want the game to look like so i ended up not really going that way um, there's also a couple interesting mods called like new threat where it like changes up the strength of the enemies you find and the uh the order of like how difficult the game is but and that i think seems a little bit more interesting but for the purposes of playing this I, I didn't want to have that muddying my expectations you know what i mean like if i was replaying this game not in quote-unquote preparation for the remake i maybe would have tried out new threat but so what i ended up doing is uh basically playing the game vanilla just uh, at high resolution as it was intended uh with a controller not with mouse and keyboard controls or whatever and to me that's just kind of all i wanted if they had an easy way or pre-configured way to have like the AI upscaling of the pre-rendered backgrounds, I think maybe I would do that. But it seems like a lot of it is like redone textures from amateur modelers. And like, I don't want that. Like, I don't want to have like, yeah. someone else's take. Go ahead. When it comes to modding, I don't really care for like content mods or silly meme mods or things like that when i when i the only mods i really ever like do are like performance related or like bug fixing like i, I don't really like like i don't really like unofficial high texture packs or or whatever i just you know i'll, I'll just if if there's bug fixes like i remember like tales of Vesperia, there was that special k mod to like uh get rid of some of the bloomy stuff and uh she fix up some of the the performance of like the stuttering so i did that or of course the near automata pc mod that makes it uh, makes the rendering resolution better and fixes some of the cutscene weirdness that that game has uh, yeah, when it comes I'm to modding that's all i really that's all that's all i really do 
And then one example, obviously, is Skyrim, which is like, if you want to, you could spend hours just modding the game and never playing it. Like, I think there's some neat mods, like Sky UI is really cool. It changes how the um, interface works with equipping your, your character and things like that. But then when people say, like, I've added a new quest where you do this, you know, crazy thing that seems like out of scope with the game, I'm just like, eh. or like this new gear, like uh, another game is the um, Knights of the Old Republic obviously especially the second one had a lot of yeah. mods where it's like here's my take on the restored content and then a lot of it was kind of almost canonized or whatever word well yeah that, that that uh, that that restored content mod I, i'm trying to trying to remember exactly how it came about but it's you so, know so uh, in 2015 the steam version of knights old republic 2 i think it like has it baked in where yeah well, first of all it comes with some really nice adjustments like it'll play in a 4k monitor without any tweaks and in widescreen without any tweaks where on the original noise of the old public you got to mod that if you want to play that game in anything but four by three you got to mod it where now they've kind of baked it into the night's old public too but and i think like some of the stuff where they make it so like a few of the uh dialogue trees are no longer like dangling threads that a few of the quests are now more fully realized i'm good with but then another thing that they added is this like droid planet, which was obviously intended to be put into the game for the fourth Jedi Master, but was never like made it past like a few concepts. So it's pretty much all amateur work. And I'm not saying amateur work is in itself inherently bad. It's obviously someone put a lot of time and effort and passion into that, but it just doesn't feel congruent with the rest of the game. It's got amateur voice acting. It's got kind of like really wonky kind of open-ended design. And like, if I'm playing that game, I'm not enabling the droid planet just because it was something the developers originally wanted and therefore it has to be there. And for Skyrim, I'm not adding stuff that just feels like, gee whiz, wouldn't this be nice? And then going looping all the way back to Final Fantasy VII, uh, if someone were to make it where it was the original game, you know, adapted to play nice on modern computers, you know, 4K or or ultra wide. I would I would entertain that idea, uh, with the backgrounds like using AI upscalers so that they don't like like look blown out. That I think would be a perfect rendition. I don't need this new threat. I don't need these like weird, dark gritty, fully. And, and uh, people might disagree with me on that. They might look at Lego Cloud and be like, "How could you enjoy this?" But to me, I'm just like, "That's how it was. You know, that's how it was designed. That's how it was drawn. That's how it was animated. That's how it's intended." Like I'm okay with this. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm able to put myself into the mind of a late '90s player and playing through the game like this. I don't need it to be like band-aided and polished and put, put makeup on to pretend it's something more than that. Something from the mid 2000s instead. You know what I mean? Yeah. But to, okay, so that's that's enough. I think for that second line of thought. My first line of thought is just some of the comments that I was thinking, like some of the notes that I took uh, about the game uh first of all chime in adam if you have because you were also kind of interested in doing this and i don't want to just like, yeah the stage but uh so there's two lines of thought that i've kind of been was thinking about when i was playing through the midgar section of this game one like how much do we see about sephiroth and like the history between sephiroth and the other characters and two how much do we know about the events that are foretold that you, you end up I'm not going to overtly spoil like as if a plot synopsis, but I am going to speak as though the audience is familiar with how the, the how the story runs. Uh, so obviously the events of the past that Cloud thinks he believes early on in the game are not actually true. And uh, I feel like in the remake, they what we've seen so far and what we heard from Alex last week is that they kind of make that more, more overt, especially with the fact that 
uh, here's here's a very low level thing. In the original game, you do not encounter Sephiroth in any form, except like at the very end, He's... you see you see uh, his work. The aftermath, does. yeah. The, yeah, the aftermath. But, and obviously that's not the case in the remake. So that means that a lot of those plot threads are by necessity going to be kind of like shunted forward where they can't just drag out the uh, the intrigue of what really happened as long. Or if they do, they're going to have to be really clever about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I noticed is in the first six hours of the game, like four characters comment on seeing the Mako like effect in Cloud's eyes, which... I don't think that's really enlightening on its own because that is something that every soldier sees. So in the original game, they're basically using that kind of observation. Shinra makes that observation. Uh, I believe uh, Heidegger sees, makes that observation. Um, I think Aerith does at some point, right? Yeah, Aerith, yeah. yeah. And it's it basically, I think it's done in a matter where it's, it's almost done to legitimize Cloud's claim where he's a soldier first class. But at the same time, when he's telling Aerith, Aerith asks, what rank were you? Uh, he says, first class. There's a bit of like a static flash, which is kind of like meaningless if you don't know the context. But if you do know the context, right. all of a sudden you're like, naha, now I know why they did that. And anyone who's played through the original game. Well, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. That. Go ahead. Um, so like Final Fantasy VII, when that game was first made and released, obviously you work with the assumption that a player playing through this section you are telling them the story for the first time. And so like you are t- take Cloud's word for granted at first that he is soldier first class. Why wouldn't you? Like that's what he said and that you're going to trust him. You don't really have any reason not to trust him. But playing through the remake, people have a different view on things. Like now people know the context behind these so they can kind of play into I should maybe not everyone knows, but they the fact that a lot of people do they can play into these things, and that's where some of these tweaks might come into play in terms of the remake, in terms of like how do they tell this story, because people are coming from a different point now in terms of what they know and what they don't yeah, know. It's, so. it's going to be very hard to balance. I feel like based on the demo, based on what Alex has said, uh, based on the leaks, if you've read those, uh, it feels like they're still doing the same tact of being like foreshadowy about it with maybe like a notch more overtly. Uh, but maybe I'm only saying that because I know now and before I did it. You know what I mean? Like, it always seems more overt. Um, yeah. It'll be really interesting. And then, of course, the other shoe is is that, obviously, these uh, revelations of piecing the, the proper story together doesn't happen until way later in the game because it's something that's a through line for, you know, three discs, where now it doesn't have the opportunity to do that because it's going to end after Midgar or shortly after Midgar. We don't really know for certain. Well, I guess maybe you do uh, if you followed, if you've dug deep enough. But how do you foreshadow these events, foreshadow that intrigue without the opportunity to kind of land it coming up the backside? You know what I mean? Like that's I have no idea how they're going to do that, deftly. So that's something I'm really eager to see. Uh, one thing that i do think that the remake can do better is that uh, one of the one of the obviously uh iconic events of midgar is going to don corneo's mansion and so uh this is the same series of events that we talked about uh on the last podcast cloud from the second reactor bombing ends up running into Aerith for a second time uh, and they basically uh they introduce him as like i'll be your bodyguard or whatever and they go to the playground. That's where he uh, tells her that 
he's soldier first class and then they see tifa in like a a cart like a wagon heading to the um wall market uh yeah wall market i was thinking like what's the name of that area uh and they don't really know why and that's that, that's like that's the entire lead-in that you get like let's go to wall market and figure out what's wrong with tifa uh or not wrong not wrong like what she's doing there and why and then when you go through the whole events of wall market and you catch up with her the explanation that she gives is we saw a weird man so we asked him what was up like this, this is as general as it's presented and then the, they, they gave us a name don Corneo. so i'm here to get information and that's like all the setup you're given and then you learn that don Corneo knows ahead of time about shinra's plan to drop the plate by destroying the support pillar so it happens to end up being obviously very relevant and very dramatic and that's kind of like going to be probably the climax of the remake but just I feel like they could do a better job because they're just kind of like, oh, Tifa ends up there on a hunch almost. Yeah, this is like... I on. mentioned this last week and uh, I didn't give a specific example, but like there are certain plot events in the original game that happen so quickly with very little setup that it's actually, I don't think, very well done in a way because like this wall market set this wall market scenario, like you said, is basically just we saw a weird man and he said don's name so we we investigated and that's it like that is literally it and it just it kind of feels just not contrived in a way like oh yeah that's it we're just gonna well, we're gonna interrogate is, don because of that when it's just a minor plot beat and the first half of the first disc of a much longer game maybe that's fine but now obviously i feel like it's i don't want to say no longer fine that sounds too almost judgmental but it feels like there's the opportunity to buff out that rough edge uh and a few other small ones like when they go to the support pillar and avalanche is fighting shinra like Aerith stays behind and off screen goes to uh protect uh, marlene and that's how she gets captured and ends up at shinra tower which is what is the impetus to go there in the first place and i'm not saying important events can't happen off screen but i wonder if they're going to be a little bit more overt about that as well because it's just kind of like how'd you get captured oh she was bringing marlene to her you know her foster mom and got captured in the process or because of that and a similar sort of thing happens late in the tower where you're just like riding up the elevators you're working your way up the chinra tower and near the end you're walking to the tower and two of the turks just show up behind you and capture you like there's no like drama behind it it's like oh they got you and then you're pulled up in front of shinra and put in the cell i guess it just all wraps around to like it happens quickly which i think is fine when it's just a small chapter but when it's a full game you wonder how dramatic eternity yeah those are the places where they could make those real big uh they could make those kind of inflection points in their own right rather than just being like sentences and a plot synopsis a rude captures you it takes you to front of shinra well how does that actually happen is are they yeah and less off screen like there's a lot of things like that and like you mentioned there's quite a bit that happens like off screen in the original um where things are said but not shown like for instance sephiroth uh going to shinner tower and murdering everyone <laughs> so like i assume that's going to be shown this time yeah and because I'm they can and they need something become, yeah that's, that's gonna almost certainly become you know you're gonna come face that'll face. be the climax of the game like that'll be the ending yeah, basically okay. <laughs> to wrap this all up uh i'm probably gonna keep going through with it maybe not with the same level of like note taking and scrutiny but i, I really just wanted to play through the original game <laughs> 
through Midgar so that I have that foundation so that I'm not clouded on this is clearly better or this is clearly worse or this is clearly the same or this is clearly And also better. like you mentioned having that fresh replay of the original now you're going to be maybe less confused playing through the uh, remake thinking wait is this something I forgot about or is this new uh because sure. if something if something is presented and let's just say it is factually new but and you don't remember it you're, you're going to be thinking like wait did this happen or not like is this new and it just kind of helps to like recontextualize like okay so this is an addition or what but also um the second bombing for instance like the, during the first bombing cloud hears something in his head and during the second bombing, you actually see like a flashback that's unexplained at the time. And then you'll also see a flashback or it's not it's not clearly identified as a flashback. It might just be, you know, his mind's eye when he's sleeping in uh, Aerith's house before he tries to sneak out. Yeah. Which you can't, like those are the things like I'm marking like what 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 events happened that that foreshadow the, like that are that are giving like they're, they're basically intriguing and confusing at the time unless you know the context. And I'm wondering, like, OK, so that's the baseline, uh, you know something that he hears in his head at the first reactor, a flashback at the second reactor, and a dream sequence at Aerith's house in Sector 6. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of noting that, like, all right, that's the baseline. Is it going to follow the same tact in the uh, remake, or is it going to be he's going to have a flashback right at the, uh, you know, at, a, at other points in the tower, things like that? Uh, yeah, and on a similar note, um, like, Go ahead. Square Enix released a, a trailer for Trials of Mana, and this is maybe more mechanics than storyline, but like I'm looking at this new trailer for for Trials of Mana, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't remember this system. Did I forget about it, or is it new? So before that game releases, I want to actually play through the original again that released on Switch last year. Just kind of just kind of refresh my memory, so I know for sure. Okay, yes, this was new. This is a new feature, and this is old, or and this is or whatever. That's a little bit more like mechanic speaking, because that game storyline. Well, obviously, refresh myself on the storyline as well, but. Uh, for a similar reason, just whenever they add something new, I always have to second guess myself whether it is actually new or I just forgot about it. So <laughs> similar, similar idea there. But yeah, so Final Fantasy VII, I'm probably going to keep playing through it. Uh, I enjoyed replaying it. And I am I am the type of person where I do not care or mind that it looks like a game from the late 90s because it is a game from, you know, you know what I mean? Like, so, or, and even that, like, I like that, I like, I like the setup with the materia and the gear. And like, I think it's still... I, I don't think a good game ages out of being a good game. And I do, it's not my favorite Final Fantasy, but it's at near the top of the list. At least in my memory, that's another reason why I'm replaying it. But obviously, I'm still trying to keep an open mind going into the remake next month. All right, before we go into the uh, brief topics section of this cast, of which there's only a few or even a couple, I do also want to give out a shout out to another game that's releasing soon, uh, the Land Grisser 1 and 2 remake. Uh, just talking about remakes, Paul today oh uh, yeah really... so this is the fourth <laughs> remake that we've mentioned uh, on the podcast uh but we have a uh, landgris remake from chow it was from chow right yes yeah so uh basically he gave his thoughts on the game and his obviously i don't want to boil it down too, too too much but he basically enjoys how the game plays he just doesn't like how it's newly presented it has very much like that fire emblem heroes look both in terms of like the portrait artwork and in terms of the gameplay sprites it's very reminiscent of fire emblem heroes which hey maybe you're fine with that maybe you're not he didn't like take to it too, that strongly but he did think that yeah i should mention that, that it was a strong um game. so the original lawn greaser 
like the 1992 game. I, I might have the year wrong, but like that game did release in uh, English. But back in 1992, you know, localization te uh, techniques or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Norms were different, and it was it was given a different name, War Song. 1991, yeah, and they they changed up quite a bit. But the second game was never released in English uh, officially. But the so the remake in that sense is the first time for English speaking people to play it in English officially. So that's you know something. Now Chow has played both of these games in Japanese, like the original versions, and he felt that some of the new mechanics, like because they are changed up in terms of like how the game actually works with like the mercenaries and how this, how your command points work and things like that. And I couldn't talk to the specifics, but he felt that it wasn't as interesting or as fundamentally sound really as it was in the original game. It felt it was a little bit, a little bit over streamlined. So his review was kind of coming from that perspective of like, I played the original. I'm very fond of them. So now I'm repeating this new game, but take into account like now we can actually play it like this is the english version that now we can actually play officially though fan translations exist so but his stance is like he's comparing it to the original and he felt things like the mechanics and the art were downgrades so so maybe that's sort of something where if you don't have that foundation you're not going to notice it yeah I, I just wanted to explain that like that's where he's coming from is he's comparing it directly to the original in his own experience is how, how, how he should you know being the reviewer so yeah and obviously uh it's got some kind of i don't know i don't know if it's surface level or, or more than that but it's got some like similar vibe as to like fire emblem games it's you know strategy japanese rpgs so probably something i'll try maybe that maybe by next weekend uh, i'll have some comments on it because it comes out and on tuesday i think so uh yeah. we'll see uh, but yeah, Langrisser 1 and 2, we put a review up uh, and we'll might talk about it on the podcast if other people will get around to playing it. All right, as for topics of the week, we have two Nice America. One of them is Void Terrarium, a roguelike RPG that released in Japan just last January. And we did not have any localization news uh, until just now or you know last week. Uh, where it will announce, it will release in English this summer, uh, but honestly, I don't know much about this game, so I don't know if Adam. I'll... Okay, let me let me let me jump in. Yeah. So, first of all, is it? I know they say NIS America, but some people say Nice America. I I, I don't know what what is it more proper if it matters. I think I've said Nice America, NIS America. You know who we're talking about. So some people say Nisa, right? Yeah, you know. I think NIS America is officially what they're called, but whatever. So uh, NIS America is obviously the English publishing branch for Nipponichi Software in Japan. Now, they're most known for like the Disgaea series. That's their flagship series. But over the last several years, they've also released several... Uh, I think maybe Passion Project is the way to put it. It's kind of these lower-budget games, lower-scope games but trying to be trying to you know be more creative trying to branch out new ip not trying to just dig in under disgaea all the time and so some of those games include uh the firefly diary which is also known as hotaro no nikki and a rose in the twilight there's also a game like uh the liar princess and the blind prince i hope i didn't get that mixed up I think um and these blind thief yeah sorry <laughs> i'm I'm remembering these off the top of my head, but basically these kind of shorter games, 
that are the kind of like the they're cheaper sprite style games. So they're not AAA releases. I don't mean that as a criticism. That's just you know these lower scope games that they've been releasing that are more like passion projects. Zach reviewed a bunch of them on our website, but none of them were very RPG ish really before this game. And Void Terrarium is basically the next in that sort of series of games. It's not related in any other way other than being maybe a similar sprite style. So this is a roguelike RPG, and the premise is, in general, that a human girl wakes up on a kind of deserted, polluted planet, and you are playing as a robot that you want. You need to protect her from this toxic world, and you create a literal terrarium, hence the name, to protect her. And then you go out about this world in this roguelike fashion to collect, I assume, things to create them to, to improve the uh, to improve the terrarium and to improve Tariko's the girl's name her health as you play the game. So that's the premise. So out of the series of games, this one is the most RPG-ish, being a roguelike. And, you know, I think a lot of people really value these kind of new IP, more creative outlet things that Nishi Software does. So that's coming out this summer on PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch. And it is, you know, it's so like you said, it's the first one that really kind of falls in our wheelhouse. So uh, most directly, yeah. Now, summer is a pretty vague window, but it'll be it'll be one of those sorts of games where We've seen these uh, smaller releases kind of be like surprisingly impactful. Like the same thing that you kind of saw with a Labyrinth of Refrain. <laughs> Either that's a dungeon crawler. Well, Labyrinth of Refrain is not is higher budget. Like that feels like it might actually be that might might end up being Nipponiki Software's. Well, it's let me just say it seemed like it was going to be their next like franchise, and they they did announce a sequel, but then or Labyrinth of Gallery, yeah. Well, I just meant Labyrinth of Refrain. They announced the sequel, Labyrinth of Galleria. But let's just say that was supposed to release, like, originally last summer. And no, now no, it's no, delayed. Last spring. Last spring. And now it's delayed indefinitely. Nipponicha Software is not in the greatest of positions. It feels like one of the biggest issues that they are currently trying to overcome in Japan is they released the Disgaea mobile game that apparently did not have a good launch. And I, from what I gather, it's doing better. But that was sort of, it felt like, from an outsider's perspective, a sort of all hands on deck sort of thing. Like, okay, we need to fix this. And so they did, they, they delayed Labyrinth of Galleria. So, um, but they did release this Void Terrarium game. And I don't know if you mentioned this, but this Void Terrarium game does have this weird stylized title that looks like a, it looks like a code snippet, like a function void, T-R-L-T-R-R-L-M. <laughs> so it, Hotaro no Nikki, Firefly Diary had a similar thing, like a stylized title. And obviously you're playing as a robot, so that's sort of the, the, that's sort of the hook there, is that you're, it's a code and you're a robot. So he's like a function that you're performing. So that's one of the games they announced. They tease these ahead of time, by the way. They tease that they're going to announce two games. I don't know if these are the games yes, people were expecting so... or hoping for. Yeah. But. So before we go before we go into that tangent, uh, so they announced at Paxi or they teased at Paxi's that they had another announcement in the, in the coming weeks, and that was announced on Thursday, where they announced Prinny One and Two Exploded and Reloaded, which is a repackaging of Prinny Can I Really Be the Hero and Prinny Two Dawn of Operation, which were PSP games. 
Dawn of Operation Panties, dude. God. Oh, yeah, Dawn of Operation. Yeah, okay. Uh, these are these are basically, from my knowledge of the the games, without having played them, just two D platformers featuring their mascot. Other than that, I don't know if there's anything more enlightening to say about that. They look kind of like silly, they're but really cool. hard. It's it's like an oh, action man. platformer. It's not an RPG. Yeah. But we sometimes cover these like it's a it's a spin-off of this guy a series that features Prinny, which is like their their penguin mascot guy who says dude all the time. Dude spelled D-O-O-D. And it also features Asagi, who is sort of like was seemed like at one point was going to be the Nipponichi software like mascot character. And has shown up, I think, in an, another mobile game, Makai Kingdom. Actually, I'm not remember exactly what happened to that. She kind of disappeared for a while, but this is the game she's in. So it features like spin-off of a Disgaea series and a Nipponichi uh, kind of original character, another one that's sort of like a brand character. It's an action platformer, and like James said, supposedly they are actually like legitimately tough games. And they're coming out on Switch. The hero sort of stuff. Yeah, it, it's coming out on Switch. Oh, I'm the guy, sorry. Maybe not that. Uh sadistic like kaizo mario yeah (laughs) Yeah, kaizo mario but it's yeah it's i think it's the sort of thing that a game that maybe people didn't expect the old the old the original games were psp games so this one obviously it's the the artwork has been up res it's you know in high definition now it includes the dlc i don't think it has any other additions but it's basically just a repackaging of that i'm sure a lot of people will be glad to see it i just think it's nice to see like a sprite game like sprites are cool so yeah I like sprites. It's funny because I've been meaning to play these for a while because I've heard like a bunch of people say they're really good, but uh, I'm not sure if I'd want to get it on Switch because like this you is bad. exclusive <laughs> and it's like if it's supposed to be really hard, like there's like no good solution besides getting like an eight bit um, or however you pronounce it to have an actually good controller like platformers on switch especially 2d platformers because like the d-pad okay on the pro, with the controller uh, is like not yeah. good the um the buttons on the joy cons aren't they're not horrible but i don't think they're the best mm-hmm. i don't know i think i'd be more likely to get this on like vita just because like you can get it digitally and the vita d-pad's like legitimately the best one D-pad of the best ones, ones. yeah <laughs> Now yeah, this game is releasing in pretty, fall. Uh, con- I'm pretty controller agnostic or whatever. Like I'll switch from an Xbox 360 to an Xbox One to PS4 controller, and like I like it, other than the adjustment period, I'm fine. But then when I play with that Pro controller, like even I with low my low standards, notice that that D-pad, like when I'm playing Fire Emblem, trying to go through the menus, it's just like even if it's struggling there, how does it? Like I don't know. I would never want to play a 2D platformer with any degree of precision. I'm not sure if it's as much of a platformer, more like action side scroller. Oh, okay. I mean, that's maybe a slight, that's maybe a slight distinction, but yeah, know. 2D game. Uh, it's if you look at the trailer, there's lots of like, it's high energy, <laughs> so yeah. apparently yeah, very hard. Some some people with uh, Nisa America, NIS America, Nisa, whoever you want to call them, were expecting uh, Falcom titles because I think that's just kind of inevitable at this point, especially since we're in a month where the PC version of Cold Steel 3 is releasing, the Switch version is releasing, I, I think, even though I feel they like... They oddly have not announced... 
Yeah. It's it's so weird they haven't announced the Switch version because like I've already seen it. I've played it for like quite a bit of time and and it's supposedly releasing in Japan in like on March nineteenth, which is like less than two weeks away. So yeah. <laughs> it's like huh. Weird. So, uh, obviously, once we get the PC and eventual Switch release out of the way, I think then we could start ramping up our expectations to see, like, will we see East 9 or will we still see Cold Steel 4? Uh, maybe as a summer I, I wonder. announcement, but I think I think it's I think it makes sense that it wasn't going to be announced when well, they have those projects. Maybe a slightly kind of on the, on the maybe a slightly interesting up. thing. So, like, NIS America being you know the the English publishing arm of Nipponichi Software. When things like Boy Terrarium are announced in Japan, Nice, nice America, NIS America, they, they have to localize it. Like it's part of their job. Like that's their priority is their their parent company software. Um, so we knew that. Like when they announced, when they teased, they had two announcements. I think a lot of people guessed that one because it's like they, they have to release this. They're going to release any NIS game, pretty much. I mean, maybe you can maybe argue maybe not the mobile stuff because mobile is a different beast, but. This printing game was actually kind of awkward because it wasn't announced in Japan, and I don't even know if it still has been announced in Japan oh, like question. at the same time. So that, that kind of just came out of nowhere that they were re-releasing that. Wasn't NIS America the ones that announced the Disgaea 4 Complete Plus? I game? think so. That was like an E3 announcement. They announced that first. It was actually like leaked ahead of time, but they announced that, and then it did release in Japan. But it's it's that's actually somewhat interesting on its own that like NIS America can sometimes announce their these projects from NIS like first. Like I assume Printy Printy One Two is being released in Japan. I just haven't really looked. But it's just they announced that before the the Japanese branch did. So it's kinda interesting how that works. Yeah. But yeah, it's in terms of like the Falcom stuff, those are gonna be bigger projects, but they're not the priority for, for NIS America in terms of like their parent company. But I wonder if Trails of Cold Steel 4 or whatever will release this year, if they if they announce it, I don't know, I could maybe see like a, a late announcement, maybe April or May after the ports of 3 come out and maybe releases in November or something like that. Who knows? I don't think Cold Steel 4 would come out this yeah, year. I think yeah, it's, it seems less and less likely, down. right? Well, I don't know. East 9 released after Fold 4 in Japan, so I don't know if that means that's, it'll that's come out after... Yeah, I don't know. It, that is who knows. It's such a weird situation that they're basically we're basically two or three years behind uh, Valcom for their releases, and and that's just for the more recent games. That's not even counting like the Trails of Zero and Trails of Azure or whatever they are. <laughs> like who knows? Yeah, we've talked about this before. <laughs> oh, speaking of uh, Trails from uh, Zero. The fan translation for that is coming out very, very, very soon. I don't think if the date—I don't know if the date's been officially announced—but I can say that the uh, fan translation for that very, very soon. So the original—is it a fan translation of the PSP version? Um, there is going to be a patch for the PSP version, but the—they uh, prefer if you played it on PC. <laughs> oh, well, that's what. I, I meant like an emulation of the PC. Is it on PC like officially? It's on a PC officially. Oh, okay. I thought it was like a PSP game and then like the Evo version was a whatever Vita game. That's what I thought. <laughs> okay. Crossbow games are both technically on PC. The only okay. uh, Zero is the one that you can easily get in the West because it's weird. 
So what happened is, is that Joyland, a Chinese company, yeah. ported uh, Zero and Owl to PC, and then Falcom themselves basically ported the existing Chinese PC version themselves. Yeah. So Joyland sometimes does that. Those weird ports, like Salsetta was ported by them first, and then XE just kind of ignored it and made their own port. Yeah. Um, weird how that happens. Yeah. And it's weird because Falcom did it for Zero, but they didn't do it for Al. So there's only one official Japanese PC version of Crossbell, even though there's official PC Even though it's a duology. It, it's yeah. weird, yeah. And of course, there's yeah, those PS4 versions coming out in Japan, and who knows what uh, the plan. Have the extra, like the extra, almost reciprocal teases for the. Yeah. yeah. They 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 have like Juna shows up in one. And then so. also, like I think they've confirmed that uh, Toa's gonna also show up in Owl, so yeah, which would make a lot more sense. Like, kind of close that one plot hole. Yeah. Yeah, but without you know beating around the bush we, that was pretty much it for announcements because we, we did that there's a few other things beyond those two east america projects like we we, we mentioned in passing that trials of mana trailer which they're kind of at that point of the of the uh media cycle where they did character trailers for all six playable characters and now they did a gameplay trailer that one i think yeah. is the one that is the most interesting in a vacuum it's the one that makes me most likely to want to pick up the game uh yeah we did also see an announcement and almost like a shadow drop of Castlevania Symphony, Symphony of the Night. My cold is preventing me from saying that. Symphony. Um, Google Play and I, <laughs> but uh, that is, that's not out and released. And I don't know if I'd want to play that game on mobile, but there it is. And, you know, it's, it's only $3, which is. Yeah, that's the sort of thing. It, it actually seems like appropriately priced. <laughs> a lot of times it feels like these ports come out. Maybe I'm just so used to Square Enix where it's like, buy this 20 year old game and it's $12. Like, what? <laughs> And then uh, we also do have some Pokemon Mystery Dungeon guides uh, alongside the review, so that's up. But other than the only that, other thing that happened this week was uh, like GDC was postponed, postponed quote um, because of coronavirus concerns. I think we talked about that briefly last week. Yeah, was and just, then like was it the possibility of it being? It's just it's just sort of like this ever building thing, like South by Southwest, that film and tech festival is canceled. Uh, E3 status is up in the air for a variety of reasons, <laughs> and just who knows. Yeah. Now, the, now the thing is, it, E3 is uh, the problem with E3 is that, like, that's that's three or four months out still, three months. But this is the time of year where people basically have to commit or not, and not just attendees, but publishers. You know, setting up trailers and demo booths and whatnot. They that requires a lot of prep, and so now is kind of the point where they have to basically commit or not, and we don't know. So people might err on the side of safety, like, yeah, we're not going to go, um, or we can't commit. Sorry. <laughs> so, so that's yeah, a, that's the, so that's that's an ever evolving story. Yeah. Yeah, as for RPG site, just letting it out there, it seems like we're not sure of our coverage either. It might not happen. So again, it's it's not yeah. even a sure thing there. Uh, but obviously, you know, it's we kind of have to look at the cost of attending versus what we get out of it versus what we could just cover remotely versus our own health. So, uh, 
it's, uh, it's just, I guess it's just kind of like it's ever evolving, like you said. So we could speculate on it for a while about what, what to expect, what not to expect. But I think we just kind of have to wait it out. The same is true for things like Gamescom later in the year. And then even like console releases, like we could we could give our best guess and say, yes, I think they're happening or yes, I don't think they're not or no, I don't think they are. But at this point, it's just speculative. We don't really know. But very weird because yep. it's supposed to be kind of like this exciting new console generation, new games, new tech, ray tracing, SSDs. It is, it is sort of weird in hindsight that I remember we were talking about just in general, like E3 2019 is kind of a quieter slower e3 than typical but we're, we're like e3 2020 is going to be more interesting because of yeah new consoles, yeah. right and then like sony sony announced a while ago that they weren't going to attend and now now all of this it's like eh, maybe not what people were hoping for especially the you know, esa on the, on, the, on the sony front they recently announced their release date for uh ghost's tsushima <laughs> again my cold i don't blame my cold tsushima uh but yeah uh, but that uh I think that was pretty much like the last thing that was unannounced on their end. So it feels like what do they have? Well, does remind me, does Last of Us 2 have a date now? Didn't it get the late? Well, it it was supposed to release like last month. (laughs) These aren't RPGs, but I'm just looking, thinking about. uh, (laughs) Oh, May. Okay, that's coming out in May. I feel like I feel like I should have known that, but I'm not serious. May. That's only that's not too far from now. Okay. But the, the thing is, what I'm getting at is that once Ghosts launches in June, uh, then we're kind of at the point where they've cleared out their that's, uh, that's their 2020 release schedule as we know it today. What's what's as far as I know, right? Am I missing anything? For the well, season? I think Last of Us and Ghost of Tsushima are like the the big two games I've been in quite a while right. so yeah so like what so what are we what are we looking forward to this holiday season well normally that's what e3 would be telling us but not now not this year so are we going to be looking forward to like a very beefy state of play we're still like we're cd might be able to talk about more if alex seahouse one of our contributors uh it's been like six months since a, a proper nintendo direct if you don't you know if you look around the animal crossing one so it's like you're wondering like what what are companies going to uh use instead or maybe they'll go all in on e3 maybe they'll say you know if it's happening we'll be there but we'll give that seems to be kind of attack that companies like microsoft and bethesda are going to go anyway but you know if that that's that's with the data we know now what what are we going to know in a month who knows uh i I guess we just kind of have to leave it there to be honest yeah we're tapering out it's gonna get it's gonna get busier especially, especially for jrpg fans like Got Trails of Gold Steel ports coming out. There's Persona 5 Royal coming out. There's Final Fantasy VII Remake coming out. Trials of Mana coming out. Bunch of stuff. Yeah. All right. So I guess I'll, I'll stop beating around the bush. Uh, thanks for attending or listening in to a shorter edition of the TetraCast to balance out the longer one that we had on Monday. If you haven't listened through that yet, it was us going back and forth with uh, Alex Donaldson about his hands-on extended demo uh for final fantasy 7 remake and it was to be clear it was he was able to play further than the available demo on psn uh as always you can read us at rpgsite.net we've got the pokemon mystery dungeon and land greaser reviews as well as the guides and small number of news stories you can see us on youtube at rpgsite.net we've got the video review of hero must die from a couple weeks ago uh you can follow us uh 
you can find us on Discord. You can find the link to that from our homepage. If you want, you can follow me at Zeomasicot, Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T on Twitter. Adam, where can I follow you? K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A. And James? At T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T. All right, and we'll be back next week. Hopefully we're, we got a full crew and we're feeling better and my voice will be back to normal. Uh, but we do, we do plan on like, we call this seemingly weekly, but I do feel like it was good to have the shorter podcast for the listeners that have come to expect to hear it every Saturday. And we will be back next week, same time. So see you then.